Hello, Gina. Hi, Sarah. Wow. It's Tuesday, October 13th, 2020, um, which, which basically means that if another week has gone by um, since we had our last conversation. And it's COVID time because it certainly does not feel uh, like a whole week, but I'm really um, happy <laughs> that we have had another opportunity uh, to connect today and really looking forward to talking to you. Likewise, Gina, it's so good to be with you again. Today, we are revisiting our topic from episode three, which is education. Mm-hmm. And I was really interested in, in talking about this some more because, you know, the more I thought about it, the more I, real, the more I realized that I kind of thought, you know, perhaps the root of a lot of this is really, or is certainly an education gap or void. And then maybe the solution is an education too. So I, I was thrilled to have another opportunity to talk about this topic a little bit more. Mm-hmm. I love it. And I, I especially, um, I've been kind of chewing since we chatted just briefly about what topic to cover today. One of the things that you wrote is the opportunity to ensure we all learn the complete history. And I've been just chewing on that phrase because there's so many things that have struck me about it. Um, One is that there is an opportunity, but I'm not sure that any of us has a whole picture of what the opportunity is or who it's Mm -hmm. for or how to achieve it. Um, uh, There are many parts of this, but also, you know, that we all need to learn the complete history, that it's not just for those going through the formal education system. Um, it's all of us have some pieces of it that we're missing that we need Mm -hmm. to learn probably a lot of pieces of it that we need to learn. Mm -hmm. And then of course the reference to the complete history, um, which implies that there's a lot out there that we don't know. And, um, that many of us have, have either not been taught or have not sought out or have not embraced. Um, so I feel like there's a lot here to unpack. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because, you know, where do we start? Um, Yesterday, today, like I said, today is October 13th, and yesterday was um, the, the day that is now being called Indigenous Peoples Day. Mm-hmm. And it's really a global movement. It's not just in the United States. But, you know, because I have had the opportunity over the years to visit other places and, and to talk to people in other places, one of the things that, that strikes me about Indigenous Peoples Day, well, two things strike me about it, or struck me about it. One of them is that in, is that uh, in the United States, indigenous people are mostly invisible. And even when we talk mm-hmm. about minorities and underrepresented groups, we all know that Native Americans are part of that, but they don't really get called by their name because they're such a small proportion of the population uh, at this point in time that it's almost like they just don't even get mentioned in that conversation. So the interesting thing was I, somebody sent me um, this thing about Indigenous Peoples Day yesterday and I said, oh, well, to myself, isn't it weird that we are actually saying we have to have a day, one day of this whole year for our first peoples? You know, they were here first and they get one single day. <laughs> and, if you, and if you stop and think about, well, what does that really mean? It means everything is sort of upside down because it's, they have been written out of the, of the histories. So, so then... Um, it, it coincided with something related to what you asked. And, and there, I do have a point with where I'm going with this, which is <laughs> that last week I read um, an article by a gentleman, a black American male who has an art collection. 
and it's a collection really of historical artifacts as you know he he buys these things wherever he, he finds them wherever he can get them and he has created a large collection that i believe is housed at a museum at this point but the first the document that he that i saw was a document from the from the 1600 no from the 1500s from the 1500s that uh, I'm trying to get it right now because I'm going by memory. Is it the 1400s or the 1500s? Bottom line is it was before the 1600s. And mm -hmm. the reason I'm saying that is because the 1619 project has had a lot of publicity recently and, and we taught and, and it has been described sort of as the point at which, um, uh, you know, a African slaves were brought to the United States. But what this guy says from his research is that is that black people have been in the United States for at least 100 years before that point. And so when we so when you said to me, you know, well, what is the history and what are the, the even the even the, the time demarcation would be something that needs to be debated. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's very interesting. Uh, so in one of our previous episodes, we talked about Juneteenth. And mm -hmm. um, we talked about, the, I, mean, I, I believe it was even our education episode. And um, one of the things that I did with my children on Juneteenth was we got out some paper and we drew out a timeline. And we mapped out from uh, uh, 1492 up mm -hmm. to present day and, uh, and just mapped out the history as we know it. And then we added in little lines for the ancestors that we know of, of when they mm -hmm. were born and when they lived and what part of this history that they experienced. Um, and in the process of doing that, uh, what I mapped out from my internet research was that the first slave ship arrived in 1619, which is about 10 years after the first colony in the U.S., um, Jamestown. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, the um, the conclusion we drew was that if there are slave ships arriving from 1619 all the way through the last one that I could find in my Internet research arriving in 1861 and then uh, just a few years later, the Emancipation Proclamation, the Civil War, and then finally um, the, the last slaves being freed um, on Juneteenth. So that's like 250 years of human beings being kidnapped and trafficked across the ocean, forced to work without pay and greater atrocities even. Um, but I hear what you're saying that if, um, if this document shows that there were black people in the United States in the 1400s or 1500s, either way, Mm -hmm. um, that's well before 1619. And, and how did that come to be? Yes. And what was their status? And mm -hmm. were they enslaved? Um, mm -hmm. And so um, you can check this out um, at the Kinsey Collection, Kinsey, K-I-N-S-E-Y collection um that's the name of the collection um and i was trying to find the photograph while we were speaking and, and my internet is is being uncooperative so i wasn't able to do that um so even if you don't find it i will help you find it later mm -hmm. but it, it was like omg it was a new piece of information that i hadn't had before so so when we talk about education and american history 
I mean, okay, let's just at least say we know for sure Native Americans were here. There were people here before the white settlers came from England. Mm-hmm. So let's just at least agree on that. The, the, so even if we're talking just about that history and we're talking about the point that we say, even if we started with the 1619, which is where that history starts in the history 19, 1619 project, you know, even if we start there, the history between then and now, that history has never been adequately taught apparently in schools because we know that to everybody in the same way you know we know for example that the children of uh, of the uh, of slaves you know it was only like in the 1960s that it could be expected that all of them would even have the opportunity to have uh, equal access to an education and and then the educations were not even Nobody argued that they were even equal because, you know, it had traditionally been that in the black schools, they got the hand-me-down books and desks and other um, artifacts from the white school in the town. And that was what they got. Right. And so Mm -hmm. there was never even any possibility that the that the educationists that they would have the same resources. Right. Um, And that's just, you know, the other day. Um, And then if you think about it in terms of the content of the education, uh, it seems as if there are a lot of things about African-American or the Black experience that have not been taught to white Americans. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas the history of white Americans that that the white Americans desire to teach has been taught to all of the other races in the United States. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. it's, it's fascinating. Yeah. When you think about that, are there specific um, examples or specific elements of the Black American experience that you think should be presented in formal education? Well, you know, um, the interesting thing is, because I'm sure that along the years I have have thought about this at some point, but... I think it's in this year that it has become clear to me that, for example, uh, when I did a talk to a group of physicians a few weeks ago, maybe a month ago at this point, uh, there were white physicians and we were talking about health disparities by race and we we're talking about disparities for black Americans and relative to white Americans, let's say, and the origin of that. And we talked about the whole notion that as you're talking about COVID-19, people talk about the fact that African-Americans, Latinos, Native Americans seemed to be getting the disease at a higher rate and dying at a higher rate. And there was sort of like an implication in all of the media when you would read the story that the, is that the reason this was happening was that there was something about these people, probably something to do with comorbidities, which is the most common explanation. They all had diabetes and high blood pressure and were unhealthy, which is a problem that minority people seem to have just because they're minorities or something, right? Mm. Like there was that. Mm-hmm. An association to the socioeconomic status and... Right. And, yep. and there is an association, but then once you, even if that were true and you started to then track back to say, well, why did they have these comorbidities? What it would lead you to is this whole lack of um, lower income, therefore less amount of money to allocate for the healthier foods. Mm-hmm. Um, it would lead you to fewer options for uh, health care and fewer options for um, for um leisure activities mm-hmm. and so on and even preventative However, care good shoes getting your exactly. medicine on time 
Yeah, or living in a food desert where you don't even have a grocery store mm-hmm. to buy the good food. And then, but okay, but let's say you went down that path of comorbidities. It would that's where it would take you. But but that but what Harvard has discovered is that the the factor that it, that most predisposes a person to get COVID nineteen is none of those things. It's really your job. And so then if you go down that path, what you find is that there's a high correlation between ethnicity and essential work in the United States. So black people, Latin Latin people, people of Hispanic descent, Native Americans are doing the jobs on the, not not even so much even the healthcare frontline, although they're doing those, but they're doing the jobs in the restaurants, they're doing the jobs in the manufacturing environments. Um, and they're in these environments where they, and they're traveling on the public transportation to do it. They don't have an opportunity to escape from it. And they're sometimes living in physical situations where they cannot social distance because of extended families or just lower um, economic status and the the condition of where they're living. So if either of those paths that you took, if you understood the facts, would take you back to ultimately the structural and systemic racism. But if you have, but if I had that conversation with some of my white American friends, they would look at me as if I had two horns, like, what are you talking about? Because they had no knowledge of these disparities and the history of them. Mm. Hmm. Yeah, that fascinated me. And we weren't having arguments because these were people that I cared about. But it was just like, even my partner, Steve, he and I, we, when I was preparing the presentation for um, for the university, I said, here's some things I, I'm going to share with you. So I showed him a slide and there was this slide where there, there was a study done in 2016. So this is just the other day. And it was a first year medical students and um, first year medical students and then first year residents. And what they presented were a variety of myths about the bodies of white Americans and the bodies of black Americans. And they asked these, these people who are now going to be doctors very soon, they asked them to identify which of these things were true and which of these things were false. I'll have to send this to you, by the way. Yes. <laughs> so there would be a simple thing like what they discovered, I should say, is that these doctors in training believed that black Americans have uh, thicker skin, that they have um, different kinds of blood vessels, that they are less sensitive to um, to heat, that they, they, I mean, they believe things that are, that given that their, their world is the physiology of the body, mm-hmm. there's no, there was absolutely no evidence for any of those things. And if they were interacting with, with people, Black people, in any meaningful way in their work, they would quickly figure out that it, these things were not true. So these physicians were as likely to believe all of these false things about Black Americans as people who had no medical education. But yet they were the ones that were going to be providing medical education. Mm -hmm. And so it was like, how could that even be? Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, that sort of thing. Yes. Anyway. That sounds vaguely familiar. I actually think that I may have read that as well. Um, And it is fascinating. And it is alarming. (laughs) Oh, there are many things um, going through my mind. Yeah, but, you know, particularly, uh, I'm sure that you read this as well, the, um, there are statistics about the, the, um, 
the degree or the quality of care that's received by a, a black uh, patient when being cared for by a white physician. Um, mm. And I've, I've heard some people explain some of that away by um, population density and city centers, you know, proximity to the city center, mm-hmm. uh, income inequalities and things like that. Um, but the one that was really um, terrifying was the statistic about um, black babies cared for by white doctors being, um, oh gosh, I shouldn't even quote it if I don't know the accurate statistic, but do you know what I'm talking about? Oh, absolutely. Because this was, this was one of the things that we discussed. We discussed the fact that, um, there's a higher rate of mortality among uh, babies. I don't know if this is the same thing that you were talking about, but measures of mortality uh, for both the baby and the mother mm-hmm. um, were significantly different. And there, and there, there was no other explanation statistically than the gen, than the ethnicity of the patient mm-hmm. um, and the ethnicity of the physician, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, there's, there's a lot of data about that. And, it, and, you know, even here at, even where we where uh, we find ourselves, um, I'm trying not. To, so you know, if you have a job, for example, where you're doing, uh, where you're studying employee opinions who work in, in hospitals and healthcare, the the healthcare industry does spend a lot of time measuring quality of of the of these uh, of the the caregiving, you know, in the hospital systems and so on. So they measure these things all the time, but the, but nothing changes. It just it's it, the pattern in the national data has been established and it has not been improving. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's yeah. really interesting. <laughs> it, so it, this is education, right? That's why we're talking mm-hmm. about this. That's why I say it's 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 ultimately. So so you're a white person and you have you know about these things. And we know our sharing histories, you know, we know why, and I understand why you might be interested in this, but you might not be, you're probably not representative of a typical white American who would never get access to this piece of information. Mm-hmm. Yes, I did. I did pull it up. And so I just want to cite it. The, I, I looked across multiple news sources. So this one is a headline from CNN, but it says black newborns more likely to die when looked after by white doctors. And it says three times more likely. Um, so I just wanted to call that out while I had it open. Yeah. And, you know, Gina, it's, it's very interesting because this is something that I've been um, drawn to since I was a young child. And I remember learning about the Revolutionary War and women who weren't allowed to fight as soldiers and a woman who dressed up as a man so that she could fight. And I remember reading about um, Native American people and the treatment. And I remember, you know, feeling great. I'm a great empathetic uh, feeler, Um, feeling very much, feeling very much about slavery and... uh, but not also then being in conjunction taught about modern day injustice and modern day inequity stemming from all of that. So um, I don't know what the reason is for that. I grew up in a very small town. um, And in that small town, I was largely regarded as non-white because in a very white community, um, I have just enough pigmentation still just dark enough skin to be viewed by the the general public as non-white. And so it was very, um, 
surprising to later go to college and be in a city, you know, a, a, you know, two, three hundred thousand person city and um, mm-hmm. be be told, what are you talking about? You are white. <laughs> um, so that was an interesting um, experience for me and a bit of an identity shift. Uh, so I don't know if that, you know, identifying as a young person as non-white ha- uh, um, contributed to my interest in inequality. Um, mm-hmm. But I-, I will also say, you know, I have a, a, a master's degree in sociology. And um, I realized that that's not just the average person's a- a- mm-hmm. academic background. Um, even with those contexts, I am constantly surprised when I encounter friends, relatives, um, acquaintances who either don't know or know and don't care, uh, I, I, I can't wrap my head around that. Um, mm-hmm. So I don't know what to do about that. Yeah, and you know, I don't think that there's anything that you can necessarily do overtly. I think you, the only thing you can do is sort of, live your life and, you know, there's say what you have to say, share information, behave, you know, share what you know, whatever. But, um, you know, it's not one of those issues where I see anything suggesting to me that you, that you can educate yourself out of it. Right. So it's not like you could just say, well, once I show the, once I show the data about Mm -hmm. this, then surely Mm -hmm. people will just change their minds and do something else. (laughs) I I don't see any evidence of that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Um, that's a hard lesson to learn. Yeah. Yes. Yes. What I do, I did watch uh, a documentary over the weekend, which I had wanted to watch, but I didn't, um, I kind of stumbled upon it and then I ended up watching it like in a moment where I, I had a mo- when I had a free moment and I cannot remember the name of it, but it's on Netflix and it's the Jamie, it's the, um, the documentary about James Baldwin. Mm-hmm. And okay, so I had always, I had wanted to watch the documentary and I, I didn't really, um, it was more powerful than I expected to be because expected it to be because there were a lot, there was a lot of him in it, you know, his lang, his, his words, his, the visuals of him and so on, lots of video. Um, and what the, what that documentary makes very, very clear is that I would say that is that this is not an issue of education. It's, it's not an issue of fact. It's an issue of emotion. And it calls out that the issue is really fear because in order for those who have these ideas of segregation and, and inferiority of other races and so on, in order for them to, it's in the United States especially, to get past that, they first would have to go through the fire of acknowledging you know, their ancestors' creation of the scenario, their benefit in, from it 400 years right up to the present, and and that piece, which you've heard before, you've heard that notion before, mm-hmm. and, you know, it became very fashionable in 2020 to talk about white fragility, but, but it is the fear of being sort of confronted with this thing that everybody, once you look at it closely, recognizes as something horrible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and people don't seem to be able to deal with that because then they have to, it's the angst with that, and then they have to give up some power, perhaps, in order for 
this other group of people to get ahead. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. the documentary is very clear about mm-hmm. that without saying those words, uh-huh. you know, exactly. Um, I am not your Negro. I am not your Negro. Yes. I have not watched it and I will. I thank you for the recommendation. Yeah. yeah well, I mean, you know, James Baldwin, if you haven't read his stuff, mm-hmm. you certainly should, yes. but the documentary, I, I kind of was like, oh, one of these days I'm going to watch it. It wasn't on my short list. But then, like I said, I watched it and I was like, I, I was transfixed by it. Mm. So it was very powerful. Mm. So, Sarah, somehow, I don't know how we do this, but we, we get together for these conversations and, you know, we, we worry about what are we going to talk about? And then we start... <laughs> And then we worry about, do we have enough time to talk about it? <laughs> because we just keep going and time flies and we've been talking for like 24 minutes. Yes, yes, I know. In the beginning, I was very committed to eh, around 15 minutes, we'll wrap up. And now I'm like, yes. let's just keep it flowing. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I mean, this, com- again, the point that we have made out along in these conversations is that this is important stuff. And I, I told you from the beginning, I would be very comfortable and let my guard down and say exactly what I thought and felt. For whatever reason, I was willing to take that risk. Um, and I think the reason I was willing to take that risk is it is somewhat cathartic mm-hmm. because the, there are people in my life who have heard these things from me before, like Steve, for example, but he and I live in the same house. And so I know he cares about me and we talk about all kinds of things. Um, and, you know, there are other, there are many of my friends who are white, who there are some of my friends who are white with whom I cannot have this conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and we've, and I've like tried in different ways, subtly and not so subtle, it ain't happening. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, um, it's a big it's a big rock to move, but um, uh, I would say that 2020 is a year in which I have learned so many things about myself mm. that perhaps that is the, perhaps that's the thing, you know, and I will say, you know, I've had my, my bad experiences this year have been primarily in the workplace. And so um, we don't need to talk about that, but, but I will say that because um there were some things that for me before were more academic or I could just talk about them abstractly. But now I talk about them in a very personal way because of some experiences that I have had. And so this year has just been a, a quite a year for, you know, mm-hmm. quite a year. It has, it has indeed. Yeah. I, I wanted to say one more thing. Um, going back to just learning your own history and um, you talked about, white people learning their own history, learning about when potentially someone in your family uh, did contribute to this system. And <laughs> when I say potentially, I mean, I, even today, there are ways in which I am contributing to the system and not aware of it. So this is just mm-hmm. a fact. Um, and it's, it's, um, it sucks. <laughs> It's a fact that sucks, but it, it is, mm-hmm. um, it is there. Mm-hmm. It is, it is true. It is happening. And so it's important for us to be willing to take a look at both present day and history 
um, with that magnifying mm. glass and to take a look at it. And you mentioned about mm-hmm. that it, it is uncomfortable to look back and to acknowledge when your own family played a role and, and what that might mean for today. And might you have mm-hmm. to give up some power? Um, but also, I think the uh, power is m- money is power. Power is money. Um, mm-hmm. And there's more to it than that. But I think that the financial aspect is one that that folks struggle to think about really on both sides. So there was an example of a story I listened to on NPR where two women had um, had been united to learn about their family histories, which had interacted in the past. So one woman was black, one was white. And the woman who was white in her history, her family had had uh, been owners of slaves and the black woman's family had been the slaves that had been owned, the people who were enslaved by this white woman's family. And so they, they talked about that and they came together and speak of an uncommon conversation. That certainly was one. The Mm -hmm. interviewer uh, asked what I felt like the elephant in the room was of Let's talk about reparations. And Mm. I was really amazed that he went there, but it was a very short-lived conversation at that point. They Mm -hmm. both rapidly said, oh, no, 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 no. That's all Mm. in the past. And, of course, when Mm. you're talking about your own finances, or even for the woman who is Black, I was surprised that she took that stance. But I I also feel like a person who is... um, there are some people who say, yes, give me my reparations, but there are other people too who they have that, um, my pride is in my American identity of I'm, I'm self-made, mm. I'm able to, you know, right. even, uh, so mm-hmm. she had said, no, 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 that's not necessary. But how then will we ever come to a place where there is equity if, if if that doesn't happen, if individual people don't say, I'm going to contribute towards this cause, whether it's mm-hmm. I know this person whose family is not as well off as my family is because their family worked for my family for free back in the day. Um, m- maybe it's I choose to give money to that family because it's owed them. Or maybe it's I, as a white person, am choosing only to invest in the stocks of Black-owned companies with the hopes that those owners are investing in the Black community. Or, you know, I don't know what the solutions are, mm-hmm. but there have to be conversations about what that looks like, not just at the national level, but at the individual level. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I agree that the conversation needs to be had because it is, it is where the rubber meets the road. And in our capitalistic culture, it's the one thing that I, that is certainly um, seems like a very, very, very sore subject, which is, well, I haven't done anything wrong to, to a black person. Why should I have to pay the price? Mm-hmm. Which means that you are, you are sort of assuming or defining that your life began when you were born. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like mm-hmm. it's, you know, like you're, that's what you're saying. And if you say that about every person, then I suppose um, if that even if that were true, you would still see that if that person who was born came into a system where their family lived in a tenement somewhere in a, in a city and they, 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 they never they never had enough money for food or whatever, that's their lot. 
and that here happens to be your lot where you were brought into this family where you know they they happen to have had these millions of dollars that you then you know got the lifestyle and benefited from and all of that Mm -hmm. you know even that would make it clear that it's 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 not that simple. Mm-hmm. It's not as simple as saying, okay, well, you know, this is where it began and this is all I know, but it's a difficult, it's very, very difficult. And I, I do think, and this is a strange thing I'm about to say, I think, but when I look at the president, the current president, the current person who's in the White House, I think it kind of actually helps to make the point because I think that anyone or even, even I think most people would, would say that we happen to have found ourselves in a situation where we have someone in a very, very senior leadership position who has authority over and influence over decisions that, that, can, that influence the lives of so many Americans. And that that person seems to have a sense of um, in, entitlement or something. That person and their whole family seems to have the sense of entitlement but it is pretty clear that part of that is that I have and you do not and I really don't really care I'm not that interested in 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 the fact that you do Mm -hmm. not I'm mostly just interested in the fact that I have Mm -hmm. and that little idea that is so clearly demonstrated in that person's behavior I think most people especially for that particular person to have it where you can, you, you, you don't see any sense of meritocracy in it in at all. It's almost like, well, how the heck did you even get anything, you know, and what did you even deserve and how did you deal with that? And, and, you know, blah, blah, blah. It just is a good object lesson in this whole idea of, you know, if people who have things don't care about people who don't have things, we cannot have the conversation, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. To be continued. <laughs> yes. Yes, Sarah. <laughs> well, thank you. But again, yes, a good, another great conversation. I look forward to the next one. And meanwhile, I. let's just keep on rocking. <laughs> Sounds great. Thank you so much, Gina. Okay. Have a great week.